All right, we're continuing our, um, our series on the church is called to be. And again, uh, we talked the first week about God being generous and how God in his great generosity elected us even before we could do anything to earn or disprove his affections or have any impact on those things. And as we talked about, that is incredibly mysterious and mind-blowing, and it should be something that we will um, continue to meditate on and wrestle with and try to think through, but it is incredibly important for us to first recognize how, how generous God is. And then last week, we looked at how his generosity should affect us, the church, in our generosity, and that we should seek to be generous with all that he's given us. And that's not just about money, right? Remember, I even let you a little bit off the hook. I said, I don't want you to give anything extra to the church. I want you to be generous to missional works, missionaries, and others who are seeking to advance the gospel. That's the critical piece, and I don't know that I emphasize that near enough, is that if you're going to be generous, be generous to the things that are truly going to advance the gospel, because that is what we're called to do. That is the uniqueness of our calling. And so it is really important that we keep that in mind. And this week, we're looking at one of the, the second distinction for, for us, the church, is that we want to be missional. Now, that's an interesting word that has kind of gotten into vogue within maybe the last 10 or so years. And it's not, not a common word that we use a lot, in especially Presbyterian churches. Me, with an Acts 29 background, we said it every third sentence. And so um, it was very much a part of our vernacular. But I think it's a great word because it indicates that that the church is not the focus. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we're not about inreach. We're not about making sure that we have everything that we need. We're about taking the message forward, right? The church is not a building. It is the collected people of God called into a fallen and darkened world called to let their dim light shine. And so we want to be thinking about that over the next couple of weeks. But first, we want to see how God in Christ em emphasized that first. And uh, if you are paying attention, we're in, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit prays. And I, this was a question I received from somebody last night, so I want to address it because I'm sure some of you have the question. You've heard me say that we want to be about Trinitarian worship. And what in the world does that mean? Is that some newfangled cult? I mean, are we going to get loose up in here? What's going to happen? Will chairs fly? No, none of that. When I'm, what I mean by I want us to be about Trinitarian worship is that we recognize the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? And, and, and if you think about different denominations, generally different ones of those get emphasized. Presbyterians tend to really emphasize the work of the Father, and then secondly, the work of the Son, and not a whole lot after that. And so the Spirit gets mentioned, but only slightly, because if you talk too much about him, he kind of shows up and does stuff. And so, <laughs> so and, and Pentecostals, which one do they emphasize? The work of the Holy Spirit, and then Christ, and not a lot about the Father. And then in Baptist circles, it's very Christocentric, and the other two don't get a whole lot of, of airtime. So I want to make sure that we as a church don't fall into that, that every service we're recognizing the work of each of those members of the Trinity within the context of the economy of redemption. That's just going to help us to grow into the fullness of what God has for us. Amen? So that's what I meant by that. I'm sorry I didn't explain it better earlier on. So, um, all right, today what we're looking at, and here's, here's the main point. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through chapter 4, verse 7. Um, and what we want to walk away with is that Jesus is sent on mission by God to redeem and reconcile God's children, setting them free to walk in newness of life, both now and in eternity. 
That's really important, and I know that sounded really long, so let me read it again. That Jesus is sent on mission by God. Let me stop right there for a second. That's really important. I think sometimes we forget that. And I think sometimes our theology works a little bit like this, that God was really ticked off with what he made. That it went bad, and yeah, he did the flood thing, but he's even madder. And now it's going to be fire. It's no longer going to be water. It's going to be fire, and nothing will be left, right? And so Jesus steps in and says, Dad, come on. These are your people. Let's cool out for a second. I'll go. Let me see what I can do, right? So we're not being saved to God. We're being saved from God. Now, you may say, I don't believe that, but I think you need to pause for a second and ask yourself what you think about God the Father and how often that even crosses your mind. Anything about God even crosses your mind. And this specifically has a significant impact on your view of the Old Testament and whether or not you can really appreciate that God has been planning and preparing for the coming of the Messiah, the King, who would reign and, and set his children free. And so um, that's really important that we know that Jesus is sent on mission by God. And why was he sent? To redeem and reconcile, which was God's will and God's plan from the beginning. That's always been God's heart. For those of you who say, I don't really know what God's will is. No, you do. You know it. it's in Christ. It's to redeem and reconcile. Now, whether or not you work at Chevron or you work at a physical therapy place or you sell bread or whatever it is you do, God's not wringing his hands hoping you pick the right job or hoping you pick the right house as if his sovereignty can't cover it. Now, does God desire certain things for his people? Don't hear me say, I'm not saying you're not specifically called to things, but so often I think we get tangled up in forgetting what God's first order will is, which is to redeem and to reconcile. And to that we should say amen. And then it is not only to redeem and reconcile, but it is to set us, his children, free. Now, I've been meditating on this idea of freedom for about the last year and a half, and it, it just continues to become a more and more beautiful reality to me as to what it truly affords me. Because if we think about it, what is the aching of every human heart? It is some form of freedom. We're seeking to be free in some form or fashion, all of us. That is the ache within every single one of us. And if we, we miss that it is also God's desire that you truly be free in the way in which you can best flourish. Now, as I've said in here before, there are those of us who want law, but we don't want anybody to hold us accountable to it, right? We want, tell me what the rules are, but then don't ask me if I've kept them, which is a paradox of sorts. And it just doesn't make any sense, but that's how we function. And so what we really need to desire is what does it mean to truly be made into the image of God, to truly be human? Human in the sense that God designed, not human in the sense that we've distorted. And so if we don't recognize that the whole point of re reconciliation and redemption is truly to set us free and that beautiful freedom that only he can give that we get to enjoy, not, it's not just some pie in the sky thing that's going to happen in eternity. No, it affects today. It really does, it, and it sets you free in a unique way to be able to take all of the things that come your way. True freedom allows you to be insulted. True freedom allows you to take great risks with those you know don't love Jesus and receive all of the blows that they will send your way. True freedom allows you to step into the middle of the greatest darkness and offer a vision for hope that is only true in the flourishing of the gospel. 
right? I mean, how amazing it is to be able to step into the middle of someone's life who has just absolutely come apart at the seams and to be able to abide with them, not giving them answers, right? I mean, I think I've said this in here before. Um, I I had some friends who um, found out in the third trimester that their child had lethal skeletal dysplasia. And that meant that the child was either going to be born dead or die within the first few days of birth. Now tell me, those of you who are really smart and philosophical, what words could I hand them that would make them go, oh, yeah, praise God. See, that's the wrong question. You're on the wrong footing. See, what we have the freedom to now do is not come in with a bunch of answers that are gonna, words that are going to fail anyway. Is Romans 8.28 true in that circumstance? It is, but it's not always the best thing to quote on the front end. Now, what, what freedom allows us to do is abide in that tension knowing that we don't have the exact words that are going to bring comfort in that moment, that we get to represent Christ. That's true freedom. And get to see on the other side what it looks like as they come through something so terrible but somehow, some way, are able to praise the Lord not for the circumstance but for his goodness. And that is what I desire to be able to do because i got to tell you pastorally, there's, there's times I'm frightened to death that I'm going to be left holding the bag because there's just things that, that words just completely fail, right? I mean, we have, to, we have to recognize that. And for those of you who are like, no, nah, I mean, what I would say to them is it's a fallen world, get over it. Well, you're not going to make it long as a pastor <laughs> or an elder or anything else. Um, and so <laughs> while there's some things that are true, again, we are free to not have to bury those truths in the wrong sand. And so um, here, the Lord sets us free to be able to see amazing things happen in his supernatural work and the power of the Holy Spirit where everything suddenly changes tone and shape, where every moment now becomes alive and every circumstance becomes an opportunity for the sovereign will of God to be, ex- to be on display. And I'm thankful that that's what the Lord did. He didn't just come and say, hey, All right, I got you to neutral. You kids carry it on from here, and good luck. As you know, um, I I sinned just this morning, as a matter of fact. Coming in, I didn't even make it in the door. Bonnie saw me almost get in a fist fight with some guy who wanted to use the bathroom. Um, And so, so, I didn't know what to do. He he went angry on me because I wouldn't let him use the restroom. And I was like, hey, man, you know, what we're trying to do here is protect our kids. I'm sure you can appreciate that. And he said, no, you take me off. And so, yeah, in my heart, I, I loved him in Jesus. I was like, mm, big hug for you. <laughs> it doesn't make me right. But, you know, it's funny because I'm standing there thinking as I walked away, I'm going, hey, we're going to talk about being missional next week, and I won't even let a guy use the bathroom. <laughs> I'm not sure I was right. I, I know what Kate, I, I don't, uh, that's a whole other thing. I, won't, I don't want to get into that right now. Let's just say I sinned. All right, so here's the deal. Let's think about this for a second. So if, if Christ is the one who pursued us, and a couple of weeks ago we had a quote that said, the, the amount at which you think you had a hand in God's redeeming you is the exact amount by which you will not love him. Let me say it this way for Christ this week. The exact amount by which you think you had anything to do with going to Jesus is the exact distance and amount by which you will not appreciate what he has done for you. Think about it from this perspective. 
Um, my wife and I, since she's not in here, I can say this. Um, my wife and I, when we were dating, uh, it was kind of Seinfeldian. If you saw the Seinfeld episode where George tells the girl he loves her, it, the exact same thing happened. So Susan's sitting in my truck, and I decided, okay, now's the time to tell Susan I love her. I said, I, I think I love you. And she goes, okay. <laughs> and gets out. I'm like, all right, well, that went well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, as think about things in life. When you've been pursued by somebody, what, what did that do to your heart to have them take up all the distance, to have them do all the work to try to reach you and to make you feel loved and wanted? Think about how that affected you. Now think about the ones you've pursued and all the work you did and the response that you didn't get now you know think about how that affects you and and how we we understand this don't we we've pursued people and we've been pursued and whatever that equation is affects what we think of the other person right when you pursue someone and they don't really respond very well or their response is yeah okay you love me fantastic moving on um what does that do to your heart so think about if you think you're pursuing christ and christ has not given you what you thought you wanted and needed. How many times have we heard in the church people struggle with, well, I prayed for that and God didn't answer. I pursued God in this and he didn't care. I went looking for Jesus and I just couldn't find him. And how it affects the brokenness and their view of, of grace and the gospel and all of those things. And so think about also how it changes the story and the impact that it has on the entirety of the redemptive story. If you think that you had a hand in going after Jesus and you had a hand in, 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 in purchasing your own salvation, then what does that do to your heart and your view of God and your view of the story? That's worth us meditating on. Because I'm here to tell you it changes the story drastically. And it creates some significant theological life experience pitfalls that you will fall into no matter how hard you try not to if that's the way you're going to go. And it's worth you taking the time to meditate on and to consider how much do you think you had a hand in the story and what's the impact on the story. Because what is one of our greatest problems? What do we want to be at, at the and the bottom blackness, darkness of our hearts. We want to be God. We want to be in control. We want to pull the levers, right? We do. Let's be fair. And so if you crack the door open in any way, shape, or form for you to become an idol, you're going to become an idol. And what is the end for an idol in order for God to receive his glory? Destruction. And I'm not saying permanent destruction, but it ain't good. So be careful of, of how you are opening yourself up to becoming your own idol. So Paul, here in speaking to the Galatians, is dealing with a particular issue. So the church of Galatia, he barely has planted the thing, he's barely moved on, and Judaizers come in. Now what's a Judaizer? Well, Judaizer is someone, a Jew, who comes in and says, yes, I know you have Jesus, and that's great, but it's not near enough. You need circumcision. You need all of these things from the law. And if you had that, you would be even more complete. Now, why is that problematic? Because it's saying that Christ's work was insufficient. 
This is also what you are saying when you say you had any part in your, your salvation. You're saying to Christ, yeah, I'm glad you did all that you did, but man, it just wasn't near enough. So let me, let me add the final distance as if we knew what the final amount was that we needed to give. That in and of itself is problematic, isn't it? And so here Paul is dealing with a, a, a very similar issue. The Judaizers have come in and convinced the Galatians that, yeah, Christ's work was insufficient. And what you really need is some of these other things. And so Paul very clearly is going to address and deal with the sufficiency of Christ who was sent, who came, who was missional to his people. And so that's what I want you to do as we read through the text is pay special attention to how many times the word came and sent gets used in just these, these few verses that we're going to look through. And so we've got to keep in mind that it is only, only in God's grace through Christ alone by our faith alone. And, and I know some of you that are philosophical said, aha, there's something we must do. Well, what is faith? What do you do in faith? What distance are you covering? Now, faith is merely this. It's a confession that there's nothing I can do. Who gives you the words of the confession? It is in the effectual call of the Holy Spirit himself that stirs you to even have the eyes to see and the ears to hear that you are not the main character in the story. And so even your confession of faith is given to you by your gracious Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, as we read the text, keep all those in mind. We're going to go through 3.23 through 28, so let's turn to God's word together this morning. <clears throat> Hear God's word. It says, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. Let me pause for just a second. So is the law, was the law a means of grace? Could, let me ask a different question. Was the law a means of salvation? No. Is the law bad? No. It was our guardian. It was the means by which we were able to see our grand need for a Savior so that when Christ comes on the scene, Mount Sinai has done its work. Luther says this, When the law is properly used, its value cannot be too highly appraised. It will take me to Christ every time. The law orients us to our need for a Savior, and, and, it, and it creates the tension by which we recognize we cannot save ourselves. And the law is not all bad. Now, in this case, we're talking about, if you're familiar with Calvin's three uses of the law, really probably the first two uses and not the third. Now, if you don't know what those are, the first use is for, it's kind of like a mirror. It helps us to see that we are totally insufficient for saving ourselves which is the greatest use that Paul's using here. The second is it has a common grace restraining effect to it um, that is good for all of society. It's good not to murder one another. It's good not to commit adultery with your neighbor's wife. It's just, those are just good, wise things. But if we left it there, we would be missing out on what happens when, as a redeemed one, the law now becomes a means by which we understand the ethics of the gospel. 
which is the third use of Calvin's law. I don't want to get into that, but I just wanted to make you aware of it. So the law clearly here is not a bad thing. So often, I think, in our rush to declare Pharisees bad and legalism bad, we love throwing those terms around. We forget the great grace that comes by the giving of the law in the first place. Here, it kept and held us fast until Christ would show up, Christ would come in his missional work so that faith could now um, go forth in the hearts of the children of God. And so we see straight away that it is only faith by which we can be justified. Again, as Paul said in verse 24, he says that Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, what does it mean to be justified? This is really important for us to meditate on because, again, if our theology leads us to think that we've just been, it's just neutral. We've been taken to neutral and now we take it from here. You miss out on the fullness of the beauty of the gospel, the fullness and the beauty of the doctrine of justification itself. To be justified means not only that, that, that Christ has taken away the weight and guilt of your sin, which how many of you have ever felt the weight and guilt of sin? How many of you just absolutely love how it feels? Oh, I love feeling guilty. I can't wait to mess up again so people will know just how cruddy I am and maybe put it on Facebook. That is not, that's not, we, none of us like that. Even those of us who became what I call the just overbearing rebels who say, I am filthy and foul. Like if, as if we led some like black heavy metal band or something. And so we just are just foul, we just relish in it. But even in their, their quietest moments, nobody wants to carry that. So he takes away that, but he also takes away the wrath of God that is due us for our sin. And that's incredibly important, too, because I think sometimes we think that the future sins we commit somehow overshadow the power of the cross. And that, yeah, Christ took care of most of those old ones, but some of these new ones I've come up with are pretty big, and I think they're larger than the cross. And so we, over, we can overshadow the cross? Why would you live in fear, redeemed one? justified one why would you allow your presence and know you've been set free you've been set free to go and confess your sin you've been set free to go and say you're sorry and you have all of heaven's gifts behind you to see that reconciliation come to the full how many of you are in some sort of relationship right now where everything's off and nothing is quite right and you don't know how to fix it and you don't want to make the first move to say you're sorry. You don't want to try to, you, you, you think they need to say they're sorry. Or something else needs to happen. It's just all wrong and weird. Here's the good news of the gospel. You've been set free to work within that and the power of the Holy Spirit first and foremost through your prayers, confessing your dependence upon God, the only one who can bring about reconciliation in such difficult circumstances. And then you get to wade into that with all humility because you reign with Christ. And there's nothing for you to fear in that, to seek reconciliation and redemption in those things. And so it is good for us to, that's, how, that's application of our understanding of the doctrine of justification in our lives. And it's not even just that. It's not even that guilt and wrath have been taken away. No, now you have become an heir to the creator of the universe and have access to all that he has. How much does the creator of the universe have? Everything and more. 
And so now you, as a justified one, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, you now have access to all that you could ever want and or need. Praise be to God. So to be a justified one is not just to be declared not guilty, and it's not even just that you've been uh, given some great gifts. No, it is that you have become son or daughter of the Most High God. And so... Christ gives us that. That's what he came to to give his people. And it goes on to say, verse 25, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now let me stop right there for those of you who were just offended by the male language there. This is not actually a place where we would want to say sons and daughters. Why is that? Because in that time frame, to be a son was to have access to all that the heir would have. You've been given all. So it's critical that in this case that we see what Paul is saying. Paul's saying now you have become an heir to all, which has, it's not an issue of sex here or gender. It is an issue of a Roman law that makes us recognize the depth of the gift. You now have become essentially the firstborn. And everything is yours. Amen? What great language that he's giving to us. And he goes on. He says, For in Christ you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, it's, I love how Paul and Peter often use their baptismal status to remind them of something. He's saying, you the baptized ones, remember your baptism. Improve upon your baptism. What does baptism represent? You are buried in death with Christ. And you, that means that you are cleansed from your sins and guilt and the wrath of God. And you are raised to newness of life. I love how Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 6 when he says, if, if the death of Christ gains you this much, how much more his life And that is my great desire for you as your pastor, is that you would grow in your ability to just just enjoy life more abundant. And that you would grow in your freedom in Christ and that you would be overjoyous at who you are as a baptized one, as a justified one. That those things would have great meaning to you. And that's Paul's desire for the Galatians who have forgotten these things and thought that they needed to add something to the mission of Christ as if what he did was insufficient. He goes on. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, why do you think he picked those categories? Does any of you know what a male Jew would pray every single morning? Lord, thank you that you have not made me a Gentile. Thank you that you have not made me a slave, and thank you most of all that you have not made me a woman. Why would a male Jew say those things? Because those people had no rights and nothing to hope for in that society, ultimately, except for to have a covering of some kind. And so the Jew is recognizing that to, to, to be those things is to not be free. And here Paul is striking at the root of that prayer and saying, in Christ, there is none of these categories. Which is good news for who? The Gentile, the slave, and the woman. 
Praise be to God that he desires that all those categories are blown away and that all of his people would know freedom in Christ and in Christ alone. Listen to what Tim Keller says. He says, the gospel has radical social implications. It means I am a Christian before I am anyone or anything else. And he goes on to say, it means that all barriers that separate people in the world into warring factions have come down in Christ. Now, that's really worthy of us taking time to meditate on. And I would encourage you this day to ask yourself the question, how do you identify yourself? What is first and foremost in your mind? Is it that you are a mom? Is that the highest, is that the sumum bonum of, your, of what you are called to be? Is it that you have a particular job or a particular position within that job? Is it that you are of a particular race? Is it that you are of a particular group? Because if any of that trumps who you are in Christ, I would say there's no way you can experience the fullness of what God has for you in Christ alone, by faith alone, in your justification and in your baptized status. No way. And it's worthy of us asking the question, because I think we're too guilty of this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got that. I'm good. I don't need to think about that. Tim Keller's crazy anyway. Can't believe Cameron quoted him in a PCA church in the Northwest Georgia Presbytery. So here Christ has said that the rules don't dictate you and they no longer define you. He is saying what you are in society no longer dictates you and no longer defines you. I have come to set you free so that you would have life and have it more abundantly. Amen? All right, let's look at verses 29 through 4, 3. Paul goes on, he says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, what did Paul just say? He just said, before even the law was formed, you now have become covenant members of the family of God. So he's saying that the Jews don't get to decide who is of Abraham and who is not. He's saying that you don't get to decide who is of Abraham and who is not. No, I decide. And I have decided that sinners who know they need a Savior are family. Remember what we read in Luke chapter 15 as our uh, assurance of pardon this morning. I, 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 can't, I love that image. And I wish, I want to be careful here because it may mean I die real soon, but I would love to see the party that breaks out when one comes to know. I mean, I hope that I, I get to see that. Um, which means I won't be around for the coming of Christ because if I get taken up in the air, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's an even better party at the marriage supper. But what a beautiful image that he uses, that the, the finding of one lost sinner creates such glorious outbreaking in heaven. And so I, I love that we get to become Abraham's heirs. And that ties all of Scripture together, doesn't it? In fact, earlier on in Galatians, Paul's very clear to say that the Abrahamic covenant was the gospel, which is an interesting thing you don't hear very often. So he's telling him, you're of Abraham regardless of what these Judaizers are saying to you. He goes on, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is, the, is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. What's he saying there? He's saying that God is sovereign and that you were a child even when you didn't know you were a child. 
and that you were kept by him until the time that he determined for you to come to know him as your father. Now, maybe that's mind-blowing and it's supposed to be. I have no earthly idea how to, to rightly understand things that happened in eternity past, but here's the good news. I'm glad it happened, especially now that I know who I am in Christ. And then you too should be glad and not get tangled up in trying to work out the mathematics of it because guess what it does? Physics fails. Calculus fails. All fail in trying to understand this reality. And how you should try to understand it is by growing in your union with Christ. You want to understand this? Grow in your affection and love for God and in union with Christ. Don't don't make this, if if I can't understand what happened in eternity past, I'm not going to love you, Lord. Well, guess what? You're in trouble. So he goes on to say, in the same way, we also, when we're children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, what he's saying there, and there's a couple of different possibilities. He could be saying the elementary spirits of the world, which is wind, fire, water, and those kinds of things. And it's true. We are, we we can't, we have no impact on nature. We are small within the created order. There's also the reality that we are also uh, under the elementary principles of the world just in terms of philosophy and culture and ideas. Let me give you an example of one of the elementary principles that you have been enslaved to. Look out for, help me out, who do you look out for? Number one, which means what? I am the most important in this story. Now, how does that affect the gospel? Now, we've been saying that for years, haven't we? And it is infiltrated into the church's theology pretty significantly because we say it a bunch of different ways in this culture, right? We look out for number one all the time. In the context of your daily lives, as you get busy, help me out, what goes first? What gets cut first? Let's be honest. Your devotional time, prayer, Sunday morning, worshiping with God's people. You don't cut other things first because you're looking out for what? Number one. But here's my argument. You're actually failing to do even that. Because if you were looking out for number one, you would make sure that you were connected to the single greatest reality in all the universe. If you were looking out for number one, you would be far more concerned that you were able to worship rightly before the Lord your God. Even you are failing in your philosophy. And that's not the only one. We could name a whole bunch more. But we are under the elementary principles of this world, aren't we? We, we fall prey to the, what I call bumper sticker theology. All of these little pithy sayings that fail to, to help us understand the grandness of the covenant and the working of Christ. And you need to kind of ask yourself this question. What are some of the ways in which I have allowed my, my understanding of Scripture and the gospel, how is it being influenced by the elementary principles of this world? Because if you're honest and you really look deep, I bet you're going to find some stuff I know I did. There's some ways in which I view things that are utterly distorted because I am unfortunately way too influenced by the elementary principles of this world. And we want to be free from that. That's part of us being free, right? We don't have to be bound by all these things. Let's pick it up in verses 4 through 7. Paul says, but... When the fullness of time had come, again, an indication that God is sovereign and he is the one who decides when happens when or what happens when. 
It says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as, adoption as sons. He's indicating that Christ was um, not above the things that we've endured. And if you read Hebrews chapter 2, a great place for you as part of your devotion today. Go read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, and there's a beautiful exposition of what this is saying. And what it says, basically, is that Christ suffered all of the same things that we suffered. That Christ was bound by all of the th same things that we were in his humanity. So that he could bear the fullness of the weight of what it meant to be a sinful, fallen human. So that we would have access to a high priest that we could go to anytime we needed him. So that we could not say that our Savior had not endured and doesn't understand where we're coming from. No, in even greater measure. He understands. It is you who doesn't understand because you have never had to bear the fullness of the weight of your sin. You have never had to bear the wrath of God. No, he in greater measure than you could ever comprehend understands what it means to be fallen human. Think about how hard it would be to be perfect. Have you tried to be perfect? Anyone want to confess and say, I, I'm giving it a go right now. I'm making some pretty good progress. And if you stick around long enough, Cameron, you're going to see I'm going to shine someday and you're going to be an idiot. Well, I'll take that bet. <laughs> All right, back to the text. And he says, And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And again, notice the Trinitarian beauty of what Paul's unfolding here. God the Father sent Jesus the Son, and they have given us the Holy Spirit. Why? So that we, when we needed to cry out, Abba, Father, that it would be fast upon our lips, that we would know what we needed in the time of trouble so that we could be guided, so that we could be convicted, so that we could have things prayed that we didn't even know we needed to pray for, which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. So praise be to God that we get the fullness of the Trinity in the coming of Christ, not just part of it, which is why we discuss Trinitarian worship. He goes on to say, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir to God. So Christ came so that we would become sons and daughters of the Most High God, that we would have access to all the spiritual blessing. And he covered every square inch of the distance necessary. You, if you're honest, never went looking for Christ. Those of us who did, we went looking for the Christ we could prove wrong. The Christ over whom we would be God. And interestingly, I who engaged in that project never found him. No, I didn't notice he was behind me the whole time pursuing me into the darkness that I had long buried myself. And when the light shined, I knew exactly who it was. And I bowed the knee. Praise be to God that he was willing to follow me into those dark places. Praise be to God that he didn't take any of the insults in the way that I meant them. And the same is true for you, isn't it? The Christ has covered the distance. For those of you who say, I, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know if I believe that. Um, well, then you've got to decide what it is you believe. And you have to decide what it is that you think this life means. And you've got to decide what it is that you think is going to happen after this life. You've got to answer all of those questions at some point. 
And my hope is that what you'll see is the greatest flourishing, the greatest chance for you to live life truly is in Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone. And that truly sets you free. And maybe you're thinking, but yeah, that seems cheap. No, 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 no. It was incredibly costly. It was incredibly costly, and what you have gotten out of it is incredibly expensive. And it is inexhaustible. It's not cheap at all. And you shouldn't treat it so cheaply by letting it be the first thing that you cut out of your week when you grow busy. As if you are looking after but number one. And so, what do we want to take from this? Jesus being missional means these four things for us as we are closing out. It means that you've been set free from the law to walk in newness of life by faith. The law no longer is your guardian. It is something that is actually a help to you. Think about the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus takes the law and turns it into this beautiful ethical reality that is, makes it so much more difficult to even consider. It's not even about murder. It's about loving your enemy. It's about making sure that your neighbor has life more abundant. And maybe I should have let that guy use the bathroom so that he didn't get angry and think ill of the church. It goes on to say, the second thing is that you've been given a new status and existence as a child and heir of God. You are no longer um, one who is a slave. You are no longer one in need of a guardian. You've been set free. You have also been set free from the elementary principles of the world, the philosophies of this world, all of the things that are confusing and weighing you down. And the last thing is you've been given the Holy Spirit and all of his power to access and use your inherited rights and privileges. H.B. Sweet says it this way, the purpose of the Son's mission was to give the rights of sonship. The purpose of the Spirit's mission is to give the power to use them. That's why we need that full Trinitarian. So the thing I would ask you, is of the four things that we just talked about, does this describe your unfolding life in Christ who has pursued to redeem and reconcile you? Do these four things, can you say, yeah, I'm at some measure, I'm I'm working my way through those things. And sanctification is progressive, right? You're not going to have them all in full. But are you at least, are you seeing any evidence of them at all in your life? And I know, I know, I know it's challenging and that maybe I should have been easier at the end here, but I can't be. If you don't take these things seriously, then you will fall just as the Galatians fell. And you will add to Christ what was never needed. And you will confuse yourself and you will never be able to taste of the freedom that comes in Christ alone by faith alone through grace alone. And I can't do that to you. Yes, it is incredibly hard to pray and ask, Lord, where am I in these things? But I can assure you that because you've been given the Spirit and you have access to all of the spiritual blessings as a child of God, He'll answer in such a way that will bless you beyond anything you've ever imagined. So, as I pray for us, and, and I do challenge you that you would take the time today to think some of these things through. We'll just do one, one song because my wife's in nursery and she threatened me bodily harm if I did to her what I did to Bonnie last week. Bonnie even sat in the front row, I think, as a reminder. Remember your sin. <laughs> but as, as we do this last song and as we'll have the benediction, um, I, I, I pray that you would carry this forward, that you would think these things through, um, that you would consider all of the distance that Christ covered and none of the distance that you were able to make and that you would desire for the freedom that he has laid his life down to give you. 
I do have to read one last quote because I did skip it, and I think it's actually more appropriate here providentially. It's by Charles Simeon. Listen at this. Listen to how Charles Simeon describes this. He says, What an astonishing transition does the soul experience, which is delivered from the terrors of Mount Sinai and brought into the liberty of the children of God from being harassed with the dread of God's wrath and impelled by servile fears to irksome, unsatisfying, ineffectual labors. How delightful to behold the face of a reconciled God and Father to feel a holy boldness and confidence before him and to anticipate the joys of heaven. Let me pray. Father, I pray that this too would be our cry, that as your people, that you would, in the power of your spirit, grant us the beauty that comes from being delivered from the terrors of Mount Sinai, from being delivered from the laws that we could never keep, the guardian that often reminded us of our brokenness and our slavery. God, I pray that in Christ this day, we would be reminded of our, of our sonship, of our um, status as sons and daughters who are now heirs that are not defined by anything in this world, whether it be categories or principles or philosophies or elements, whatever they may be. In union with Christ, we are defined in freedom now. Thank you for, for sending Christ. Thank you that Christ came and was able to do the fullness of what we could not do, which is lay to rest the powers of sin and death so that we could be justified and baptized and redeemed and reconciled. God, thank you for all of your gifts. May we celebrate them this day in Christ's name. Amen.